is an Odyssey original. This is KDX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, we just shot something down that was flying around off the coast of Alaska, only we don't know yet what it was or where it came from. We'll go in-depth. A new COVID treatment shows promise but may never actually be used here in the U.S. Why? And hospitals in either Philadelphia or Kansas City could be busier than usual Sunday and Monday treating heart attack patients. Super Bowl outbreak for fans of the losing team is apparently quite real. NASA's new head astronaut has ties to Southern California. We'll talk to him. And chickens have some new competition when it comes to sandwiches. We'll go in depth on that. I mean, they want to eat something different on a sandwich, well, like we'll a find, like we'll a, maybe out. a meatball sandwich? Yeah, or we'll, a... we'll see. We'll okay. find out. Okay. Uh, uh, chickens uh, better be on the guard. Well, they have good taste, chickens. <laughs> <laughs> we, we start with the... Sorry about that. We start with the uh, shooting down of some object off the coast of Alaska. With us is Shashank Joshi, who is defense editor for The Economist and has been tracking this story rather closely. Thanks for being with us. So do we have any idea, do you have any idea what this was? Good afternoon. Uh, No, we don't. It's an unidentified flying object in the truest sense. What we have learned from the US government is that it was flying at a relatively lower altitude than the uh, now infamous Chinese spy balloon of last week. It was about 40,000 feet, this latest balloon, which is obviously, uh, well, not obviously, but I should say it is, it is at the level of, uh, you know, some airliners. Therefore, it posed a threat to civilian air traffic, which is one of the reasons it was shot down. That, along with the apparently more aggressive rules of engagement that the administration has, you, you, has now implemented. You did say balloon. So is it for sure a balloon of some no. type? No, no, I, and I, I shouldn't have said balloon. Uh, no. so I perhaps should have, ought to have said suspected balloon because, um, you know, whilst whilst uh, there are reasons to think that there may be more balloons, the U.S. government has been talking publicly about the vast fleet that China has been using for these purposes, um, and there were others over Latin America in the past uh, past uh, uh, week. Um, I don't think we have any specific details indicating it was a balloon, and indeed, if it was, it was a much smaller one than the one that was shot down outside South Carolina last week. I think the comparison has been made to a, a number of small cars rather than a number of buses, as was the case with the previous one. And we're told the reason they uh, hesitated to shoot down the the first uh, balloon that we were talking about not too long ago was that it was uh, big, it was dangerous if it would have fallen on people or property. They didn't want to do that. And also, I think, uh, because they wanted to gather some intelligence from it as it was operating so they could kind of tap into what it was sending back so they could know what kind of uh, operation we were talking about here. Can we surmise from how quickly they shot this one down that, that maybe, just maybe, it's possibility that uh, this was something similar and they didn't see the need to wait to gather information or that it was over an area where it would not have hurt anyone when it came down. Yes, I think that's part of it, right? The debris has supposedly fallen into the very cold waters off Alaska. And so that indicates that they could take a shot at this when they thought it would fall over water, not over land. Now, the earlier balloon, they did see it approach, but they didn't have enough time to take it down 
before it then floated over more populated areas. So I think part of it is absolutely a sense that there's no there's more, more limited value in intelligence collection this time round. However, I also think politics may have played a role. You know, clearly the Biden administration has been heavily criticized for its response to the first balloon amongst its political opponents. And I think there may have been some sensitivity around not wanting to be seen to endure another uh, circus with a uh, suspected foreign object transiting the continental United States in slow motion <laughs> yeah, over a number of days. And, and I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be my next question, that, that I do kind of suspect a bit of politics here because apparently we've been told that balloons from other countries and in fact our balloons go all over the world and apparently this is something that's been going on for quite some time and it just seems interesting that uh, in just a few days time after the white house has taken a lot of heat mostly by republicans for not reacting quickly enough to the the large chinese balloon that all of a sudden we seem to be all too happy to shoot stuff down pretty quickly now Yes. Yeah. And I think, of course, there's risks in that as well, because, you know, this object is not identified. That suggests there may not have been visual confirmation. As I said, it was traveling at an altitude that was consistent with not just very high altitude balloons, but also some civilian airliners, particularly smaller jets that can make, get those altitudes. And, you know, in history, I look back, we've had episodes, we've had moments in which moments of fear and paranoia and sensitivity around foreign air incursions have resulted in some catastrophic decisions. You know, I'm thinking here of the Soviet shootdown of a Korean airliner in the 1980s, uh, and uh, as well as the U.S.'s own shootdown of an Iranian airliner um, uh, using its Aegis missile defense system. So I think when you have this kind of very febrile situation with tension and concern around threats to airspace, uh, it can result in some, you know, pretty, pretty uh, hair-raising decisions at times. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Shashank Joshi, defense editor for The Economist. Older people who get sick with COVID really only have one option right now when it comes to treatment. That would be Paxlovid. But there's a new variant-proof treatment that can reduce someone's odds of going to the hospital by about 50%. It sounds great, except the FBI may... FBI, the FDA. FBI. <laughs> maybe the FBI, too. <laughs> yeah. The FDA may not approve it soon. Dr. Jeffrey Glenn is a virologist and director of the Pandemic Preparedness Initiative at Stanford University. And helped lead the study of this treatment. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Sure, it's great to be here. And, and I do presume it's the FDA and not the FBI that has to get involved in this, right? That's correct. Okay. Um, we're talking about interferon, right, which is a, is a protein, is that right? Yes, it's the body's first line of defense against viruses, and this is a particular type of interferon called lambda interferon, which is different from the types of interferons that most people may be used to mainly because it has much better tolerability compared to the old classic interferons, alpha interferon or type 1. So lambda is what we've used in this study, and in part because it had been used in over 3,000 patients even before COVID, um, usually uh, for hepatitis where we give it once a week for a year, but for COVID, one dose is enough. So what's the uh, holdup for uh, maybe not uh, getting this into COVID patients here in the U.S.? Well, um, you know, things have to go through uh, the, in the U.S., the FDA and other countries, similar regulatory agencies. I think what's nice about this study that just came out, it really presents the data in a very uh, comprehensive, complete, peer-reviewed fashion and uh, the nation's top medical journal really Fantastic study, thanks to all the patients, the, the uh, clinical investigators. 
um, who helped uh, make this possible. And, and the results, as you alluded to, are really exciting. It was the first study in, in largely vaccinated patients. And in that population, 51% decrease in, in hospitalization. There were about 15% of patients who were not vaccinated. And for those patients, uh, especially treated early, there was an 89% reduction in hospitalization or death. Now, now these, are, these are patients who are already ill as opposed to uh, being given this uh, prophylactically. Is that right? That's correct. These are patients who presented with uh, significant upper respiratory symptoms. Uh, most of them also had uh, high risk factors. And uh, but interestingly, this this study uh, was over the period it was conducted, all the variants circled through, including Omicron and, and the drug Lambda works against all of them. So am and, I am I correct, though, that that because I thought I read that in the studies that were done, one of the hang ups for the FDA is mm-hmm. that that uh, the subjects in the study, were they not in the U.S.? Was that part of the problem? Well, I. It is true that uh, a large number of centers were in Brazil and also in Canada, um, but uh, you know I'm not sure what the problem per se is. Uh, we often do studies outside the United States. Um, uh, this drug works in all humans, <laughs> whether they're Americans or not, um, and uh, it is very compelling. Uh, it has a, a 100% compliance. It's one dose and you're done, and the side effects are the same as placebo. So and it doesn't have any of the drug drug interaction problems uh, to the Paxlovid, which is, as you mentioned, is really the only other drug that we have available. So what what is the hang up then? I I don't get what the what the problem is with the FDA. You've got the study. It was a good study. It has the results. I mean, when they uh, authorized for emergency use, the uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, uh, there were people who said that they weren't studied enough, but they were studied clearly enough in order to get them out and into people's arms. So what's the issue with your study then? Yeah, well, hopefully there is no issue. But as of now, uh, we, this data is here. It's it's very compelling. Um, there are several hundred thousand doses that are available for use. This is a broad spectrum antiviral. It was studied here for COVID, but there's a lot of other data suggests it would work against other viruses, such as influenza. And um, it's ready to be scaled up to be given on a massive scale globally. I'd say the, to be honest, the most lucky first patients who have access to it will be those people who live in a place where the regulators, the doctors, and the patients are all on the same page, thinking it's important to have new options to decrease hospitalization and death. And, and um, I'm ex- looking forward to where that will be. All right. Thank um, you so much, uh, Dr. Uh, Jeffrey Glenn, a virologist, director of a pandemic preparedness initiative at Stanford University. And still ahead, heartbreak over the Super Bowl can land fans in the emergency room. Philadelphia. And when is a chicken sandwich not a chicken sandwich? Right now, though, NASA has a new chief astronaut with ties right here to Southern California. He's Joe Acaba, who was born in Inglewood. He's also the first person of Latino heritage to lead the office. Joe's with us right now from NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be with you, and I'm glad I'm not sitting in that traffic out there. There you go. You got it always. Uh, so uh, explain for us very quickly, what, what does the chief astronaut at NASA do? Yeah, so the chief of the office is really, you know, the 
kind of the leader, the representative of the astronaut office. Um, so various duties, uh, but really it's just representing the office, whether it be uh, in meetings, uh, carrying forward, um, you know, opinions, uh, decisions we want to carry forward. So just representing my colleagues and fellow astronauts. So what exactly now is this country's if you want to uh, sort of encapsulate its space mission in the 60s of course it was getting to the to the moon by the end of the decade which we did in 69 uh then it became you know the space shuttle what is america's mission in space now yeah that's a great question and uh you know i just want people to know that one of our Primary missions now is with the International Space Station. Uh, we have astronauts living up there. They've been up there. Um, you know, we've had a presence up there for more than 20 years now. Uh, so that's a big part of what we're doing, conducting science up there that uh, not only helps us uh, in the future exploring, but also helping life on Earth. But um, as you know, uh, we are right in the middle of the Artemis, Artemis program, and those missions are coming up. We had Artemis 1, which was very successful, sending a capsule around the moon coming back. And uh, our next step is now to send uh, humans, send astronauts in a mission very similar uh, to get us back to the moon with the ultimate goal of getting to Mars. Excellent. Uh, tell us a little bit about your Southern California background. Uh, born in Englewood, uh, Latino heritage. As you were growing up, what got you interested in being an astronaut, how, and how did you how did you manage to accomplish that goal? Yeah, so I, you know, of course, consider myself a Southern California kid. Um, I think what first got me interested, you know, you mentioned the Apollo missions. I was born in '67, so my grandfather would show us, you know, these those old uh, reel-to-reel films of the Apollo missions, and I remember seeing that, and that kind of sparked my interest. Uh, but you know how life is. It takes you in different directions. Studied geology, uh, had various uh, fields of study, was in the Marine Corps, the Peace Corps. But before I came to uh, NASA, I was uh, an educator in Florida. And I heard NASA was looking for educators to become full-time astronauts. And, you know, it was an opportunity opportunity for me to try to fulfill that childhood dream and uh, filled out the application. And luckily enough, I was selected. You know, one of the big differences, of course, in uh, uh, the way this space program operates compared to, you know, we were alluding to the 60s and going to the moon and then later on the space shuttle and space station, is there's so much more private enterprise involved in it now. And I don't just mean the contractors who build the various component parts, but, I mean, things like SpaceX. And and, uh, how has that changed the way the space program works? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely intentional. And so that is part of NASA's mission is to help commercialize um, starting off with low Earth orbit. And it's they've come a long way thanks to NASA's support, uh, you know, both financially, uh, but also with an experience base. And so, you know, we and especially in the astronaut office, uh, we work very closely with those private astronauts that will uh be joining us on the International Space Station, uh, but it's a, it's a good change and it's intentional and one we think is beneficial uh, for everyone. And we do want to make space more accessible uh, to a larger population. 
All right, thanks so much for joining us, Joe Acamba, NASA's new chief astronaut with ties right here to Southern California. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Super Bowl, no doubt stressful for the players and the coaches. It is the biggest game of their careers and the most watched sporting event in the country. Yeah, but it's also apparently stressful for fans. There have been a number of studies that show a higher rate of heart attacks during and shortly after the Super Bowl for losing fans. With us is Dr. Brian Kolsky, cardiologist and director of the Structural Heart Disease Program at Providence St. Joseph Hospital in Orange County. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Yeah, you bet. So that doesn't sound like good news. That that what if if you are watching the Super Bowl and your team loses, you have a bigger chance of getting a heart attack. Yeah, you know, obviously, as someone who's a sports fan myself, you know, there can be a lot of these sort of emotional roller coasters and you know, a, a real negative emotional reaction to to your favorite team uh, losing can certainly, in, especially in vulnerable patients, trigger a cardiac event. So in the back in the when the uh, Steelers beat the Rams uh, handily in the Super Bowl and it was a, a kind of an ugly Super Bowl, you know, there was an increased uh, event rate in in, ju- in just in locally in, in Los Angeles. And and they looked at a similar sort of uh, study when the when the when LA was doing uh, you know uh, better and they didn't have quite the, the same event rate and this is actually across multiple multiple sports uh, including World Cup soccer they saw the same thing. You know I've been joking uh, for the last few minutes last couple of days that uh, it's going to be Philadelphia losing uh, in the Super Bowl. Uh, who knows? Uh, it might be uh, Kansas City might be the losers. But I was looking up some uh, details and some uh, facts and surveys and at least a few years ago uh, Philadelphia ranked on the lower parts of the list of healthiest cities in the US. So if Philadelphia does indeed lo- lose, it might be even worse for them because of that, do you think? Well, I think for, yeah, for two reasons. One is there's probably more patients who are vulnerable with these cardiac risk factors and, and sedentary lifestyles and poor diets and, you know, smoking smoking rates and all that stuff. But on top of that, I, you know, I think Philadelphia fans tend to be some of the more emotional fans that I've, I've dealt with. I'm not sure about you guys, but. So is the, uh, the solution or the cure for this problem to only pick winning teams? <laughs> well, I'm a Chicago Bears fan, so I, I certainly have not figured that that one out yet. But I think the main thing really is just trying to find a, a way to to celebrate the game and sort of root for your team in a way that's not going to that's not going to kill you. Yeah, is there a bigger you know? issue here that uh, people uh, Americans uh, need to find better ways to handle their stress? I mean, over uh, getting stressed over a game. Uh, well, I can understand people bet a lot of money on these. That can factor into people just watching get really bent out of shape and everything just becomes life or death. Do we need to maybe rethink how we teach people about how to handle stress and anger and uh, conflict? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, we we talk uh, and, and we have patients that have stressful jobs and, and are, are going through sort of emotional uh, issues at home and, you know, deep breathing just quiet meditation. You know, these things are actually quite useful in your daily practice. If you're in, you, you know, people that commute and have really terrible drives and traffic, you know, you can get, you can really build up a lot of, uh, of physical stress. And, 
and being able to have sort of tools to counterbalance that is really important. Is there a pill you could take? I, I there. You know, there's medication you can take for anxiety, but I don't think that's what I would recommend. I think you, you really want to push more the uh, the lifestyle modifications in this situation. So would you as a doctor, if you were talking to somebody that you know had a history of uh, problems like this and stress was very bad for them, would you tell them, hey, don't watch the Super Bowl? I, I might say, hey, look, if you're, t- you know, if, if you're v- that invested in the game, if it's, if it's kind of not going your way, go for a walk outside, take, you know, Take some deep breaths. Watch and, the puppy and bowl. Yeah, exactly. The what exactly. bowl? The puppy oh, bowl. The puppy bowl. Yeah. What did you think I said? I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to repeat it on the air. But no, okay. don't say that. No, uh, okay. With us, uh, and thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Brian Kolsky, cardiologist, director of the Structural Heart Disease Program at Providence St. Joseph Hospital in Orange County. Well, you probably heard about Impossible Burgers, right? Those are the plant-based burgers that look and even taste uh, like a real hamburger. Some people say cardboard, but okay. Mm, Yeah, taste, uh, quotation marks. Yeah. Now, here comes, ready for this, the Impossible Chicken Sandwich. Mm Mm-hmm. Chick-fil-A says it's going to test a breaded cauliflower sandwich at some restaurants across the country, but not here in L.A., uh, these are plant-based sandwiches uh, that uh, some question if they're really healthier and can do anything to replace the traditional chicken sandwich. With us is Kimberly Gomer, Director of Nutrition at Body Beautiful Miami, and Greg Doolin, owner of Doolin's Soul Food Kitchen in both Inglewood and South L.A. Uh, thank you both for joining us. My first question will be to Kimberly. Uh, I know with these impossible burgers, you know, when I checked out the sodium content, it was quite high. And uh, it, making me question, is this really healthier than just eating the meat? Uh, is that the case here with this cauliflower done in the style of chicken sandwich? So it's interesting because I've always been a non-fan of that Impossible Burger because it was beyond the sodium. It was all that processed seed oil in it, and it ended up being not even a bit healthy. Uh, and it's so interesting because I was doing my little bit of homework because we it's not out in Florida either, either, either this Chick-fil-A cauliflower sandwich, but it was, um, I couldn't find a lot of nutritionals on it. I know that it's made with milk and eggs. So, you know, there are two types of people who are looking for a plant-based alternative. One is going to be the ethical uh, vegan or, you know, the person who doesn't want to need animal products, uh, not necessarily caring about health. Oreos are vegan and so is uh, our grapes. So it's not going to meet their needs. So there's this assumption that there's a second group of people that are going to think that, oh, cauliflower is so much healthier than chicken. And I believe that when we look at, because they're going to have to fry that cauliflower up to make it taste anything like, and probably put a lot of, you know, salt on it. So my prediction is it's going to, anything breaded is going to taste breaded, but it's probably not going to meet that. It's definitely not going to be superior nutritionally to the chicken. Okay. That's the nutrition part. Now let's get to the taste part. Greg, uh, I can't imagine cauliflower is, is a soul food, is it? Hey, well, first of all, let me just say, I love Chick-fil-A, but I don't think my customers would, would go for that. Uh, they, uh, they, they love the traditional, uh, southern dishes, the, the, the fried chicken that you can smell and, and, and hear simmering in the skillet. Oh, and I'm then, getting hungry uh, now, Greg. You yeah, know, well, that's maybe. my, that's my job. I'm good at doing that. Yeah, yeah. Go on. Keep going because I'm getting hungry. Go on. Yeah. But, uh, you know, 
you know, there there are people looking for, you know, non-meat products, but uh, my customers who are who who you know love traditional soul food uh, will probably uh, want to stick to the to traditional fried chicken for the most part. And, you know, in some cases, and we can bring the nutritionists back in on this, too, it might even be healthier just to eat the real thing. I know my wife is very much into healthy food. And when I first met her, I was addicted to Coca-Cola. I would I would have two or three a day. And she's coming back to maybe one a month or when I can sneak one, one every week, you know, depending. But she she told me, don't drink the Diet Cokes because that's less healthy for you than just going ahead and drinking the sugar thing uh, because of the chemicals that they, they put in the, the sweeteners for that, that, that no, it's not good for you either, but it's better for you than the, than the diet version. Is, uh, will, will that be the case with a cauliflower chicken? Say, wouldn't, wouldn't the chicken just be healthier anyway? Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but Uh-oh. I'm not going to agree with your wife that the Diet Coke is, is somehow worse than the sugared Coke. Uh, Agree that artificial sweeteners have their own it's a, a talk for another day. But to be perfectly honest, uh, Coca-Cola is vegan. So, again, we're looking for this group of people looking for that. Uh, but truth be told, I, I believe that when we're going to break it down, that cauliflower that you're going to get in that breaded sandwich it's going to be a horribly processed food. And I think that when we put it uh, side by side, we're not going to see it being beneficial. And I just did a, a media uh, interview on fast food hamburgers and looking at that impossible burger. And it was nutritionally worse than eating a real hamburger. So I will predict that uh, that it's not going to do well. So Rob, so, she she disagrees with she yeah. disagrees with your wife. So is is this like divorce now? Well, no, <laughs> don't don't let her hear that because now she'll say you can never ever have cokes. And yeah. yeah. So Greg, Greg, do you serve uh, in any shape or, or, or form cauliflower in your restaurants at all? Uh, no, we serve collard greens and, and string beans and black eyed peas, traditional Southern sides. Uh, but uh, cauliflower, although I like cauliflower, it's just not one of the things we serve at Doolin's Soul Food Restaurant. Yeah, I, I just, I think, I don't know. I mean, the idea of having a cauliflower sandwich seems on on every level so wrong. I mean, I just don't get it. Listen, they're going to mask it and fry it and salt it, and you won't even know it's cauliflower. I predict that, too. That's probably true. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the resistance here, at least from, from us here in the studio, is yeah. that we don't really like foods that are pretending to be other foods. Mm-hmm. Mm. Exactly. I mean, that chicken in it is the least of the problems of the sandwich. Let's just put it that way. Because are you talking about like the bread and things like that? I'm talking about all that processed bread and the the biggest my biggest issue are the seed oils so whatever they're using canola oil soybean oil those are really harmful for inflammation and gut health and they're in almost every fast food i did as i say i just did a, a media piece on it was filet of fish sandwiches yeah. fish sandwiches and there was literally every single one was using pro- these processed seed oils because they're cheap and they sure you know and they're really very bad for health, aside from the fact that the meal becomes so high, uh, so low fiber right. and so high sugar and salt. And, uh, yeah, it's, you know, like, you know, Kimberly, I, I, I haven't, uh, unfortunately, although at some point I will, I'm sure, but I haven't yet uh, eaten in any of uh, Greg's restaurants, but I'll bet you, I'll bet you the chicken that he serves 
is a lot healthier than a lot of other things that people can eat and probably a heck of a lot tastier. It's very delicious, I can say that. <laughs> and it's also and it's also our number one seller. Fried chicken is uh is our not only our number one seller, but it's the number one protein protein in America today. Greg, you you sold us. Yeah, it sold the, us. It's the soliest of soul food. It's easier than my sale on health for sure. All right. <laughs> All right, so so in our little contest here, the it, chickens lose, cauliflower, no, cauliflower no, loses. Cauliflower loses, chickens so it's win. Like, so it's chicken one, cauliflower zero. But, but by chickens winning, they're losing because we're going to eat more chicken. Oh, yeah, that's true, too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's chicken. bad news for chickens. Then. Yeah. Okay. Chickens are here to stay. <laughs> <laughs> but not for long. Not for long when we eat them. Uh, that's Kimberly Gomer, Director of Nutrition at Body Beautiful Miami, and Greg Doolin, owner of Doolin Soul Food Kitchen in both uh, Inglewood and South L.A. I, I can tell you this right now. I will never, ever, 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 ever have a cauliflower sandwich. Never. Never, ever. I'm going to bring the cauliflower sandwich, see if we can trick you into eating it. <laughs> Just see if we can do that. <laughs> Fat chance. <laughs> that's, it. that's it for In-Depth for today. We'll be back on Monday at 1 p.m. here on KNX.